Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us again together this evening to speak to us. We uh, marvel that you are a speaking God and that you accomplish things through speech. We pray now that your word will be effectual in our lives, setting out to accomplish all that you have set for it to do. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us hearts to believe and minds to understand and hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your will. We pray that we be transformed now by the renewing of our mind and conformed ever more and more to the image of our beautiful, glorified, crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated. And turn, if you will, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking again this evening at the Lord's Supper. And we talk about the sacraments in our church as being the second mark of the true church. We say the first mark of the true church is the pure preaching of the gospel. And the second mark is the pure administration of the sacraments. And already when we looked at what the sacraments are, we recognize that they are holy signs, that they are signs that God initiated or Christ initiated for his church. We didn't come up with the idea of water and bread and wine on our own. These are from Christ and that the signs are pointing forward to something. The water is pointing forward to the washing of renewal and the blood of Christ and the bread is pointing forward to the body of Christ and um, the uh, wine to the blood of Christ. So we recognize that they're holy signs. We also say they're holy seals. They confirm and ratify that which they represent, that we are washed, that we are cleansed, that we are forgiven, that we are participants in the body and blood of Christ. Both sacraments were also instituted directly by Christ as well. He told his church to go and make disciples and baptize them. And he instituted the Lord's Supper and told the church to do this repeatedly, perpetually, until he comes. That's another point. He said to do it perpetually until he comes. And then they're made effectual by the Holy Spirit through the word. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper don't just happen on their own or they're not indifferent to the works of any other member of the Holy Trinity, but they are made effectual by the word and the spirit as he applies what's promised to us in these things. And so this evening we want to look at the Lord's Supper. We recognize that baptism is the initiated, you know, you're initiated into or brought into the covenant community, and that only happens once. But the Lord's Supper is something that we do regularly and repeatedly. In this church, we actually do it every week. The Lord's Supper is not just an initiation, but a confirmation. We need constant reminders that this body and that this blood were shed for us. We need constant nourishment to feed on the body and blood of our Christ. We need the constant refreshment. We need the constant renewal. And so we do it frequently. And let's hear what the scripture has to teach us about the Lord's Supper. Turn, if you will, first to 1 Corinthians 10. I just want to read two verses there, and then we'll flip to 1 Corinthians 11. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, looking at verse 16 and verse 17. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And now flip over, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. This is where Paul's giving instruction on the Lord's Supper. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when you, we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And I actually meant to start at verse 17. So I'm going to back up and give a little context in verse 17. It says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then it's the, for I delivered, uh, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I meant to read that first to put in the context of what Paul is saying here regarding instruction for the Lord's Supper. And so here we recognize that eating with one another is very special in our own lives and throughout Scripture as well. There are many meals with the Lord, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And over and over we read about Jesus reclining at table with his disciples. The Pharisees were often bothered by the practices that Jesus had in terms of who he ate with and what he did with them. And then Jesus in particular in the gospel said that he desired to eat this uh, Lord's Supper meal with them before he went on to the cross. So the night before, or the night that actually was he betrayed, he, he, he instituted the Lord's Supper. He had a meal with his, uh, with his disciples that initiates and starts the practice that the church has of enjoying the Lord's Supper. And really, if you think about it, this was the last shared meal of a dying man. Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed. Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified. He knew that he was going to be a condemned criminal, and what he wanted to do the night before was to share this meal with his disciples. And it has a meaning for them, and it has a meaning for us as well. And so as we think about the Lord's Supper this evening, I'd like us to think about three things. First, that it's family food. Second, that it's real food. And third, that it's comfort food. It's family food, it's real food, and it's comfort food. So let's think about those things this evening. First, we recognize that it's family food. Paul, in the passage that I read, you'll notice, is deeply concerned in his letter to the Corinthians about a great many things. There was a great temptation in, in Corinth. There was factions, there was idolatry, there was selfishness, there was division amongst them. And Paul's writing into that context, he's deeply concerned. 
He says here, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Right? That shouldn't be. The church is the place where you're actually united, where you're drawn together, where the differences of whatever separates you in the common realm are put aside and you're brought together as one body, as one people, as one family. We note here when I say it's a family meal, he says, when you come together as a church, the Lord's Supper is for the family of God. It's for the people of God. It is for the church of God. And he's really concerned about the divisions. Earlier in the letter to the Corinthians, you'll remember, he said, you know, some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. And he said, there should be none of that. We're all of Christ. We're in this thing together. His concern here isn't so much doctrinal, but there are things that are separating Christians, maybe the rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave, free, the haves and the have-nots. And that those things were starting to creep into the practice of the church or how they were even doing the Lord's Supper in one way or another. What should be a celebration, what should be a participation, what should be a proclamation in their unity was actually dividing them. And Paul was saying it actually looks more like a pagan feast than what Jesus Christ had initiated it to be. And so he says, I do not commend you, I rebuke you for that. What you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. Some were even getting sick and some were dying by the practice that they were participating in. He says, do you despise the church of God? Notice again when I'm trying to make this first point that it's family food. He says, when you come together as a church, you're doing these things. And he says, do you despise the, the church of God? The, the Lord's Supper is a family meal. It is family food. It's meant for the people of God to participate in. And so Paul won't just leave them in their air. He instructs them. He says, Let me for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. No, he received it from the Lord, and he's delivering it to the people of God. It's interesting in terms of time. We don't know exactly when all the books of the New Testament were written, but it's very likely that 1 Corinthians was, was written before at least three of the Gospels. So this would have been some of the earliest written instruction about the Lord's Supper. Certainly they had the practice before from the Gospels and from the Word and from the Apostles, but this is the, one of the first recorded practices of Paul saying, I received this from the Lord and I'm delivering it to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Plural, it's for all y'all. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you, plural, all y'all. Drink it in remembrance of me. Right? It's not just you, and it's not just your family at home. It's when you come together as a church, when you gather together. This is for you. This is for all of you. It's for the church. It's for the family. It's for our brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians, the, the passage that we read in verse 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 that we read, says that we're sharing one loaf. We give thanks. We participate. We proclaim. We come together. We as a family, we're, we're doing that together. Here we do that every Lord's Day as we gather together in the morning. So it's food for God's family, right? He didn't give us TV dinners. We don't go and sit at a counter. We don't have a drive through We don't have happy meals. It is a happy meal. But we recognize that it's a means of grace, isn't it? 
We're united to God vertically, and we're united to one another horizontally. This is our family. He is not just my father, but your father. He is our father. And we are united to him in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we are united to one another. Something's happening in the supper. That's what we'll get to in the next point, and it's real food. But something is actually happening. We're being united to Christ. We're being united to the Father. We're being united through the Holy Spirit, and we're being united to one another. It is family food, and it's pilgrim food. It's given to us in this present evil age as we wander between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his second coming, awaiting that return with our eyes on the horizon, knowing that he's coming and knowing that he said he's coming soon. And so the supper is inherently social. It's inherently communal. It's also inherently covenantal. This is the blood of the new covenant given for you. And it's inherently ecclesiastical or churchly. It's for the family of God. It's for the people of God. It's for the family. It's family food. The Lord is not telling us about something that will happen in the future. It happens right there in the doing of it. And that's the second thing we want to look at. Not only is it family food, but it's real food. In Heidelberg 78, we read, do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? This is a question people always want to know when we get stuck on trying to answer. And it says, no, just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but it's simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself. And then don't miss this phrase. Even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Okay, so that's telling us something, right? When we're talking in the Lord's Supper, we're using a language that's in keeping with sacramental language or covenantal language. In other words, what's going on here? We're not asking a metaphysical question. Metaphysics is a big big word, right? Trying to figure out the essence of things. We're not trying to figure out what happens to the bread and wine. We're trying to figure out what goes on in this supper, what goes on in this sacrament, what goes on in this ritual, in this participation. If we are asking what happens to the bread and wine, we're asking a wrong question. We're asking a metaphysical question. We should ask, where is Christ for us in the supper? And then we're asking a covenantal question. So young people, if I asked you, is Jesus Christ present for us in the bread and wine? You would say no. If I said, is Jesus Christ present for us in the supper? You would say yes. It's sacramental language. It's covenantal language which the Heidelberg then goes on to unpack. It says, you know, it's trying to understand this. Why then does Christ call the bread and body, uh, of the bread and body, uh, his blood and wine, and why does Paul use the words of participation in Christ's body and blood? And then the catechism says, Christ has good reasons for these words, which is always a good thing to say. You always want to side with that, right? He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by the visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths 
uh, as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we had personally suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. So think again about that phrase that we read in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Reflect on that. It's a participation in these things. It's not just saying it happened. It's not just memorializing that it's happening. It's saying when we do this, it is participating in the body and blood of Christ. So we wholeheartedly affirm the real presence of Jesus in the supper. We don't refer to the real presence of Jesus in the bread and in the wine. We're not asking where is Christ in the elements. We're asking where is Christ for us in the supper. And Jesus says quite clearly, right, this is my body which is broken for you and this is my shed blood. Jesus doesn't hedge his terms, does he? And so there are different views of this, right? The elements do not merely represent or symbolize the body and blood, as memorialists think. The elements do not become the body and blood, like the Roman Catholics think. And it, we don't confuse the things, thinking that Christ is in with and under the elements, like our Lutheran brothers and sisters think. So we're saying we don't separate them. It's not that the sign and seal have nothing to do with each other, like memorialist thinks. We don't transform them, like Roman Catholics, saying the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, and we don't confuse them by saying that he's in with and under it. We're talking about sacramental, covenantal language. Think about what Jesus said in John. In John 6, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat, right? Of course, we would have been standing there. We would ask the same question. What's going on? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Note that Jesus did not correct them and say, no, 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 I'm merely talking about symbols or memorials. He actually dug in deeper and doubled down. He was saying, no, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. We believe that it's real food. We believe in the real presence of Christ in the supper, not in the elements. We are really eating. We are really participating. We are really communing. We say in our communion form, while remaining bread and wine, we joyfully believe that we receive in this meal nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable statement to think about, isn't it? While remaining bread and wine, the elements stay, bread and wine, 
we joyfully believe that we receive in this meal nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another line in the water for us to think about this being real food is to note how real it is. In 1 Corinthians 11, we note that some people were getting weak and ill and some have died from participating in an unworthy manner. It's not like they had gotten some bad wine or they had gotten some bad bread. It's they're participating in this in an unworthy manner. Jesus said, whoever eats or drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. In other words, it's food poisoning. It's noxious. John Calvin said, the Lord's Supper is a noxious poison to all of those whose faith it does not nourish and confirm and whom it does not excite to thanksgiving and clarity. It's real food. Something's happening. So much so that those who participate by faith are feeding on the body and blood of Christ, and those who don't are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. So much so that in Corinth, some are getting sick and ill and dying. It's real food. Something really is happening. Something is going on. Something significant. It is a means of grace. It's communing with the triune God and one another. Unless anyone freak out about, are my worthy? What does it mean to come worthy? There's a whole question on that, which is coming up, so stay tuned. Uh, but uh, it says, who's unworthy is unbelievers and ungodly. You're unworthy if you're a hypocrite and you're unrepentant. Then you're eating in an unworthy manner. Who's worthy? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins and are looking to Christ alone. It's not how good you are. It's do you have faith? Are you resting and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone? Come, believing sinners. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The table is for you. If you're a hypocrite, if you're unrepentant, you're going to eat and drink judgment on yourself, and it's going to be damaging to the church. We have a responsibility to not let you come to the table. Ah, but for those who believe... And recognize, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Then he do, in addition to the word, he gives us visible, tangible signs. Something to taste and touch and smell and see that the Lord is good. That this body was given for me and that this blood was shed for me. It's radical, isn't it? It's wonderful. We also would say it's spiritual with a capital S. This all happens through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we recognize wholeheartedly there's some mystery to this. If you come after the service and ask me, well, explain exactly how that happens, I'm going to say, I don't know. The Belgic Confession even calls it, we recognize there's a mystery to all of this. It's given to us clearly enough to know what we're saying here, but we don't know it exhaustively. We can't explain all of it. But by the Holy Spirit, we feed on Christ. In our communion form, where you're asked, um, lift up your hearts to the Lord. We say we lift them up to the Lord, right? Because that's where he is. Where is Christ? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Holy Spirit lifts us up and we commune with him. He doesn't come down and enter into the bread and the wine. He doesn't come down and transform them into his body and blood. We're moved. We're moved spiritually to partake of Christ where he is, where that once and for all sacrifice is ruling and reigning for us. 
And so we are moved through the Holy Spirit, and by the Holy Spirit we partake of and receive nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And to recognize that that real food in that covenantal context is it's for us. That's the language of a covenant over and over. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Christ died on the cross for the sake of and instead of us. We say that he's a substitutionary atonement, right? We deserve death. We deserve condemnation. We deserved wrath. And Jesus didn't say, no, they didn't really deserve it. They're kind of good, cuddly little people. He said, no, they do deserve it, but I will pay their penalty. I will go. And he was crushed. The wrath of God, the Father, was poured out on him. He was forsaken. He was bruised. The wrath of God poured out. He was condemned for us. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. And he conquered death in the flesh. And that body on the cross was raised to new life three days later. And then about 50 days later, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit was poured out, and now every week you're called, come. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and you participate in that body, in that blood. We lift our hearts to the Lord, because that's where he's ruling, and because that's where he's reigning. It's, a real, it's real food, beloved. We're really participating mysteriously and spiritually, capital S, in the body and blood of Christ. We're not asking what happens to the elements. We're asking what happens in the supper. What happens in the covenant renewal ceremony is we feast on the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord. And then finally, not only is it a family food, not only is it real food, but it's comfort food. The Lord's Supper does not create faith. It strengthens and nourishes the faith that already exists. As a matter of fact, in our form, again, it says, this meal is given to us because of the weakness of our faith and our failures in the Christian life. To remind us, I've got this. This is my body, broken for you. This is my blood, shed for you. And the Holy Spirit is the key in all of this, right? The Holy Spirit isn't a substitute for Jesus Christ. Jesus kept on telling his disciples over and over, it's good that I go away. And you can imagine, after being with him three years, they just want to hang on to him. No, don't go. We want you to stay. But he says, no, it's good that I go away. Why is it good that he goes away? Because then, having accomplished our salvation, he's ruling and reigning, and he sends the Holy Spirit, who is the one who connects us to Christ plus all of his blessings. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who, who justifies us through Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who unites us to Christ as we feed on him during the supper. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter, right? He's the one who comforts us during these things, through the preaching of the gospel, through the administration of the sacraments, through the Lord's Supper, comforting us and assuring us that just as surely as I eat this bread and just as surely as I drink this wine, so too my sins are forgiven. I am his and he is mine. So the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And we shouldn't be too quick to think of memory as merely an intellectual activity, like, oh yeah, that happened. 
in Scripture, remembering often has a participating aspect to it, right? Remember the Lord's Day. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. It's not just, hey, remembering, that's one day of the week. It's remember it by participating in it, by keeping it holy, by honoring it. We recognize and we remember that this body was broken for us and this blood was shed for us. And it's the Holy Spirit who often brings that remembrance to us, isn't it? Jesus had told his disciples in John, he said, the Holy Spirit will teach you and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. In the context, he was speaking specifically to those disciples. But we can recognize that it is the Holy Spirit who illuminates the word to us. It's the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who seals us and is a guarantee of our faith and our salvation. So remembering is something that the Lord evokes in us. And in the Lord's Supper, we remember the past, the present, and the future. In the past, on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, we remember the then and there of Golgotha is the present reality of the here and now, taste and eat, see that the Lord is good, and we do that until he comes again with the assurance that he's going to return and he's going to return soon and then not one of his will be lost. And so there's a past aspect. The night when he was betrayed, the week end that he was crucified, a present aspect, come, believing sinner, taste and see, and we do this until he returns. And I submit to you, until he returns would be a nonsensical phrase again if he comes back every Lord's Supper into the elements. It would be meaningless. Paul doesn't say the bread and wine are mere symbols. And Paul does not say the bread and the wine become Christ's body and blood. Rather, he says they are a participation in the body and blood of Christ. The Lord that may seem very absent from us at times is very really present to us in the word and in the supper. Take, eat, remember and believe, we say. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're renewed. You're united. You're not your own. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from Christ. It's more than a mere meal. It's a covenantal renewal ceremony that God uses to remind us, to assure us, to comfort us, and to strengthen us, to unite us to him and to unite us to one another. I'd like to close by looking at, turn, if you will, in their smaller books, these forms and prayers. In light of what we read in Scripture, in light of what we confess, just hear what you hear every week as we come forward regarding the preparation and the consecration. And see if this doesn't resonate with the Scripture. See if it doesn't resonate with our catechism. On page 50. See if you don't pick up the themes of a family food, a real food, and a comfort food. To all of you who have with godly sorrow confessed your sins and who affirmed true faith in Christ, the promise of Jesus is sure. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
while remaining bread and wine, these sacred elements nevertheless become so united to the reality they signify that we do not doubt, but we joyfully believe that we receive in this meal nothing, nothing less than, I'm sorry, that, we've, that we receive in this meal by the Spirit through faith nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's real food. For all who live in rebellion against God and unbelief, this holy food and drink will bring you only further condemnation. If you do not yet confess Jesus Christ and seek to live under his gracious reign, we admonish you to abstain. Right? You can't come. It's not good for you. It's not good for the church. We care about you both, so no. But all who repent and believe, right? Not all who've got their act together or all who had a wonderful week or not all who went without sinning, but all who repent and believe are invited to this sacred meal not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Beloved, do not allow the weaknesses of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table, for it is given to us to be comfort food. It is given to us because of our weaknesses and because of our failures in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, real food. As the word has promised us God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of his unchangeable promise. So come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then hear the prayer of consecration again. It says, Almighty and everlasting God, who by the blood of your Only begotten Son has secured for us a new and living way into the Holy of Holies. Cleanse our minds and hearts by your word and spirit that we, your redeemed people, drawing close to you through this holy sacrament, may enjoy fellowship with the Holy Trinity through the body and blood of Christ our Savior. We know that our ascended Savior does not live in temples made by hands, but is in heaven where he continues to intercede on our behalf. Through this sacrament, by your own word and spirit, may these common elements now be set apart from ordinary use and consecrated by you, so that just as truly as we eat and drink these elements by which our bodily life is sustained so truly, we receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and true blood of Christ. We receive these gifts by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift and this meal that you have given to us. Not just to be a reminder or not just to point to something in the future, but to be a very present help to us in a time of trouble. A table spread for us in the midst of our enemies to remind us that you are near, that you are here, that you are good. A table in which we, a meal in which we participate spiritually, mysteriously in the body and blood of Christ knowing that as we eat that bread and drink that wine, so too his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us and that there is no longer any condemnation for us, that we are forgiven and that we have peace with you now and always and there is nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from your love in the Son through the Holy Spirit. May we truly be comforted by these promises and by these realities. And may it also, Father, May we reflect on the reality that it unites us to one another. And in the way that we treat one another and care for one another and pray for one another, may that be reflected in the reality that we aren't our own either, but we share one holy food, 
one Father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. And all God's children said,